You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bedient, one of the physicians here on Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two partners, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. And today we are very happy to welcome back Dr. Mark Ratner, the Chief Science Officer of Theralogics, also known in our little circle as his scienceliness of all things vitamin supplement <laughs> and uh, supportive for fertility. And we are very glad to have you back, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. So what have you been up to this weekend so far? Well, I attended a, a birthday party for my, my 95-year-old father. And we threw this party with the help of his 93-year-old girlfriend. <laughs> so cool. Wow. I think that's a true testament to how great their logic is. If, you have, if he has a 93-year-old girlfriend and he's made it to 95 and it sounds like they're still like getting around. I'd like to tell you that was the case, but unfortunately, my father can't keep his pills straight. For anything. So, <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so, right. It's an adventure. It's definitely a mixed blessing making it to 95. Yeah. What do you do at a party for a 95-year-old? Did you have a pinata? Are there <laughs> party games? Was there a big cake that somebody jumped out of? Perhaps the girlfriend? Yes, a stripper. You know, it was like a typical <laughs> bachelor party. No, um, I have a couple of brothers. They've got, each of us has a couple of kids. There's one great-grandchild. The entire extended family was there. Oh, and um, awesome. it was sort of special for him. It was a lot of fun. And so is he getting around pretty well and still kind of like... You know, he uh, he still drives. We warn the community when he uh, leaves the house. <laughs> uh, but physically, he's doing okay. But, you know, he gets to be 95 and kind of get forgetful and... Uh, it's tough, but fortunately, he's got a lot of happiness still in his life. So that's great. That's great. Still got some quality going on there. Yeah. All right. Susan, do you have questions for us today? I do. I do. Okay. Our first question is, I'm 27 going through workup for secondary infertility. My son is two and a half and I've had normal cycles since four weeks postpartum. It also took us 18 months to get pregnant with him. And I had one early miscarriage before him. This is the first time I've been worked at. Just discontinued breastfeeding last month. Day three, estradiol and FSH normal, HSG normal. My doctor had me do a day 14 progesterone and it came back low at 1.9. Was this too soon to test progesterone? Because I thought day 21 was more common to test progesterone. Doc said unclear ovulation based on my result, but basal body temperature spiked and OPK was positive. How soon does the corpus luteum produce a lot of progesterone? Is it instantly high or gradually climb? Thanks so much for your podcast. Very insightful listener. This is a very informed patient, I will say. We have lots of very informed patients, lots and lots. Our listeners are super smart. It is really impressive to see people who have no medical training have the uh, grasp of what they're doing. I actually sometimes think they talk better about the hormones than some of the physicians. (laughs) (laughs) They do so much research. Well, I think something was lost in translation there because I don't know about you guys, but I don't usually do day 14 progesterone levels. The only time I would do a progesterone level that wasn't day 21, 22, or 23 is if somebody shows up and has a cyst on their ovary or think they're ovulating at a weird time. That's the only other time I would do it outside of that window of day 21, 22, or 23. So I have a feeling that your doctor 
somehow miscalculated and thought you were day 21. I don't know. I just, I don't know why they would check a day 14 level. I occasionally will do a progesterone level. Like if I'm doing a mid-cycle monitoring to see when I want to trigger somebody and I'm like, ooh, cred, I think you ovulated, but I want some yeah, yeah, hormonal, yeah. you know, things to show me that that's true. Or like in an IVF cycle, when I do like a Lupron trigger and I do LH and progesterone to confirm that. So I would say that a day 14 progesterone, you know, if you had just ovulated, it could be on its way up. I mean, progesterone is not something that spikes high quickly. It is something that has a gradual rise, which is the reason why we do it cycle day 21. Day 14, I mean, if you had a progesterone and an LH, I would feel better about that. You know, when I do IVF post-surge labs, if somebody doesn't have a lot of follicles, sometimes my progesterone might be 1.2 or 1.4. I like it to be greater than three, but I'm also, I have my LH there and I really only need to have one of the two to be appropriate for me to feel comfortable. So... I agree with Abby that I think your doctor meant to do a day 21 progesterone. I wouldn't hold a whole lot of stock in my first month post breastfeeding with a weird progesterone level, you know, possibly redoing it at a different time next cycle might be helpful. I would agree with all of that. The other possible thing is if you told them that you had an ovulation predictor kit that turned positive several days before that, because sometimes they'll go early. Yeah. You know, I could see where that would be a, a routine check of, okay, let's, you know, you're now five, six days post when we think you ovulated, let's check and see if your progesterone is high. That might be the other explanation, but yeah, it might be worth checking one a little bit later. I mean, I usually do day 21 to 24, somewhere in there. So Okay. Susan, do you have any other questions for us today? Let's do one more. Hi, I have just started listening to your podcast. Thank you for all you do. I've had a terrible time trying for baby number three. I've had two full-term pregnancies, first child at 29, second at 31, now 35 years old. In between my two living children, I had one miscarriage in my first D&E. I got pregnant in 2020 with my third child who was totally healthy. However, I had P-prom at 19 weeks, elected to terminate the pregnancy then later had to have a DNC to remove residual placenta. Ever since I've had a myriad of emotional and physical problems. We found out in 2021, I had Hashimoto's, which has since been regulated with medication. I then got pregnant on Fomara summer of 2021, only to miscarry again, resulting in my third DNE. I am now seeing an RE who did a surgical procedure to eliminate scar tissue in my uterus. And finally, my endometrium is building up again. I've been doing a few rounds of Famara. Is there anything else I can do to increase my chances? This has been such a hard journey for me and my husband. Thank you so much. That's really tough. It sounds like the reasons for the miscarriages have been a little bit more clear cut, at least in the case of the P-prom at 19 weeks. That's something that in general, most of us don't have a whole lot of control over. That's worth a discussion with the high-risk obstetrician that you were likely working with. Like if there was any inciting factors, sometimes infection, trauma, things like that can bring it on. A lot of times we never find out. One thing we always think of if someone's had miscarriages like that is, is there a place for doing additional testing? You know, certainly uterine evaluation is helpful. It sounds like you've already had that with the procedure to take away scar tissue, making sure that there's nothing else abnormal with the shape after the multiple uterine procedures you had. It may or may not be worth doing blood work just from your story. I think there's probably less utility from it, but but it sounds like she's had two kind of what I would consider normal miscarriages plus the P prom. So I would still probably recommend doing 
the recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation, just because you've had live births doesn't mean that there isn't a chromosome problem. It doesn't mean you don't have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Yeah, probably worth checking. I wonder too about the endometrium. I mean, like Carrie said, it's really hard to know why she had P-prom, sometimes infection. I mean, who knows? Uh, but after that, she mentioned that she had a D&E, which I don't know if she meant a D&C, but D&E suggested it's later, like in the second trimester. I think she actually probably had two DNCs and one D&E. But she went on to mention at the very end about her endometrium being thin and having scar tissue. And it almost sounds like maybe that's more the problem now. You know, I don't know why she had the P-prom initially, but it sounds like because when you have a DNE, it's a little bit more. Um, well, I mean, they're all invasive procedures, but sometimes it can lead to scar tissue. I guess I'd put it that way. It's more likely to lead to scar tissue than maybe just a regular DNC in the first trimester. And I wonder if maybe some of the endometrium just didn't regrow back really well after that. And maybe that was part of the reason why you had the next miscarriage. And then I do think that we don't really know, but we think that aspirin may help blood flow to the endometrium. I mean, there's not a lot of great data that supports that, but I would definitely consider doing aspirin if you're not doing that. And Mark is our expert in vitamins, so I hate to speak for him, but vitamin E we think may cause vasodilatation of the spiral arterioles that may help with blood flow to the endometrium. So those are things I typically try and treat my patients with. And sometimes just straight estrogen for a few months, depending on how thin your lining is, to see if we can get the lining built back up may help as well. That may not be the whole picture, but I do think that may play some role in your inability to, to carry a pregnancy. Definitely worth watching that lining as you're going through, but you've had two babies that increases the odds you're going to have a third healthy one. Um, it's just, can you stick it out while you're going through all this to keep going? I would also recommend if you haven't already had ovarian reserve testing, you are 35. Things aren't quite the same as what they were, you know, when you were 29 and 31 and making sure we're not missing an ovarian reserve issue that's kind of creeping up on us that may be a signal that we need to be more aggressive than less aggressive. All right. So today with Dr. Ratner, we are going to be going through what are inositols, how does that relate to fertility, and just kind of work through some of the background behind them and what they do and how they're important and how we can use them to the benefit of our patients. So Mark, can you kind of give us an idea of what inositols are and where they're in the body? So inositols are actually part of a class of compounds called sugar alcohols. And the other sugar alcohols that we're probably familiar with are things like mannitol, sorbitol, xylitol. These are six carbon sugar alcohols, basically. And they're found in fruits and vegetables. And diet products. Yeah, I was going to say diet gums, diet ice creams, diet all the things. Well, yeah, but inositols themselves are actually found in fruits and vegetables in a fairly you know, large amount. I mean, the uh, average Western diet is anywhere from 800 to 1,000 milligrams of myo-inositol per day. So it turns out that this class of compounds, the inositols, are very important because they serve a function as what we call second messengers to certain hormones. Now, the hormone that first drew our attention that inositols are important for is insulin. And obviously, to go back to real basics, insulin is secreted by the pancreas in response to the level of glucose, sugar, in our blood going up. So after a meal, the level of glucose in the blood goes up, the pancreas releases insulin. Insulin then binds to a receptor on our cell's surface. 
and there are insulin receptors throughout the body. When the insulin binds to the receptor, what happens is the receptor releases messengers that are called second messengers. And those second messengers go into the cell and they allow the cell to take the glucose in from the bloodstream and then use it. So inositols are part of the communication system to help make sure that insulin really works well within the body. Exactly. They are essentially what permits insulin sensitivity. I mean, there's basically two different forms of diabetes. In one type of diabetes, the pancreas starts to fail. And sometimes it's because of an autoimmune illness. Sometimes it's after a viral infection. What used to be called the juvenile onset diabetes, because it very frequently happens to children. But now we call it insulin-dependent diabetic. The pancreas doesn't make insulin or it doesn't make enough insulin. And so the glucose can't get into the cells. It builds up in the blood and you end up with what we call hyperglycemia. Too much sugar in your blood. Too much sugar in the blood. And there's not enough insulin in the blood. But there's another type of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Which is probably more common in the United States. Absolutely. And that diabetes, that type of diabetes is caused by a condition called insulin resistance. And what happens in insulin resistance is the pancreas is fine. The pancreas is producing insulin like it's supposed to. But when the insulin binds to that receptor on the cell surface, the receptor does not release the second messengers in a proper manner. Now, it turns out that there are two different inositols that serve as second messengers. One is called myo-inositol. The other one is called dechiro-inositol. And the ratio between those two determines how that cell processes sugar. So when you're looking at inositols in general, I mean, there's, so it looks like there's good application to patients who have diabetes of various forms. How does that translate to our fertility patients who many of them don't have diabetes? I mean, most of us, I think, check an A1C or sugar just to make sure that if someone's diabetic, we catch it because it's got big implications for pregnancy. But in general, why do fertility patients really care about inositols and that second messenger communication system? Because the most common anovulatory form of infertility for women, in other words, the most common form of infertility related to failure to ovulate in women under the age of, say, 35 or 36, is a condition called PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome or polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's been estimated anywhere from 5 to 10% of reproductive age women have PCOS. I feel that's actually in reality much higher than that. Yeah, I'd say way more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Okay. Well, the condition is characterized by three features and how you actually decide whether somebody truly has PCOS or not. Believe it or not, even after 40 or 50 years of understanding that this exists, there's still quite a bit of disagreement as to exactly how you make the diagnosis. There's different criteria. There's the Rotterdam criteria. There's the the Androgen Excess Society criteria. Different scientific groups have tried to use different rules, so to speak, as to how you decide, yes, this woman has PCOS or not. But the three important features are problems with ovulation, meaning either infrequent or absent periods, excess androgen, Androgen means male hormone, and the male hormone, the primary male hormone, is testosterone. So women with PCOS, they typically will have excess testosterone, and that excess testosterone causes 
certain symptoms that the woman will notice. And the typical symptoms are going to be things like thinning hair on the top of the head, excess body hair, sometimes on the arms or on the face, acne, weight gain. These are all features of what we call excess androgen or excess male hormone. And of course, irregular cycles in our field too. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, that was, a, I mean, either infrequent or absent periods, right? Yeah. And then the third thing is when they do ultrasound and they look at the ovaries down in the pelvis, they see multiple cysts in the ovaries. Now, what combination of those three things have to be present to make the diagnosis of PCOS is what there's still quite a bit of disagreement about. So why is the whole concept of insulin important? Because probably 80% of women with PCOS have a high BMI. They have a high, what's called a high body mass index, meaning they're overweight. And for women who have PCOS who are overweight, almost all, 80 or 90% of them are insulin resistant. But even normal weight PCOS women have an increased risk of having insulin resistance as compared to other normal weight women. So yes. if you have PCOS and you're thin, doesn't mean you're off the hook. Right. A, a lower percentage, what's called lean PCOS, which is tricky because you don't have a phenotype, a classic phenotype. And so you don't instantly think PCOS, but I think the numbers are somewhere in the range of 30 to 40% of women with lean PCOS also have insulin resistance. And so there's a medication, there's a prescription drug that has been used for treating insulin resistance in women with PCOS, and it's called metformin. And metformin has been around for probably 40 years or more. It's now generic, and it's what's called an insulin sensitizer. It makes the insulin receptor work more effectively. So when somebody has insulin resistance, remember we talked about how in type 1 diabetes, the blood sugar level goes up. But that's because the insulin level in the blood is way too low. What happens when somebody is insulin resistant is that, again, the blood sugar level goes up because the insulin receptor is not working right. It's not releasing those second messengers properly. So the blood sugar level goes up, but the pancreas is okay. And so the pancreas says, oh, we've got all this extra blood sugar. We've got all this extra glucose. We need more insulin. And so women who have PCOS, women who have insulin resistance, not only is their blood sugar level high, but their blood insulin level is high. And we call that hyperinsulinemia. And unfortunately, all that excess insulin makes the ovary do some bad stuff. So how does myonositol kick in there and help that problem? So I apologize because this is like a very complicated story, but it all boils down to the fact that by supplementing myo-inositol and d inositol in the proper physiologic ratio. And what ratio should that be? It's 40 to 1. Like 4-0? Yep, 4-0 to 1. Okay. So 40 to 1 myo-inositol to d inositol By supplementing in that 40 to 1 ratio, you can restore insulin sensitivity huh. in women with insulin resistance because of PCOS. But it actually goes beyond just PCOS. So the inositols there are now six studies which show that the risk of gestational diabetes, that means diabetes that occurs typically in the later stages of pregnancy, can be cut in half. The risk of gestational diabetes is basically half in women with PCOS, women with elevated fasting blood sugar in the first trimester, women who are, have high BMI. They're all at risk of gestational diabetes. If you supplement with inositols, 40 to 1, you cut their risk in half. 
for women that are maybe already on metformin, is this something that would be helpful for them to add or is it kind of one or the other? There are a couple of studies out which show a synergism. In other words, they work through different mechanisms. Pathways. So they can be additive. There's never been any study that showed like your blood sugar gets too low if you combine them. Okay, yeah. But there are a number of studies that show that head-to-head metformin and inositol supplementation are equally effective in insulin sensitization. The main difference is that metformin has five times the rate of unacceptable side effects. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're usually not real happy with us. No, most people really don't like metformin. They have opinions. Yeah, the GI side effects are terrible. How do you dose myonositol? Because if you have some patients that are heavier, some patients that are thinner, some on metformin, some not, how do you figure out how to dose it? And when do you start? Great question. The backstory on inositols, it actually started here in the United States. All the research on inositols first started at the Medical College of Virginia back in the mid-90s. And in 1999, there was a study that was conducted there and it was published in the New England Journal. And they used just D-Cairo, only D-Cairo inositol as an intervention in women with PCOS. And they restored ovulation. They got a lot of good benefit from it. The researchers said, did that, they incorporated, and they started a pharmaceutical company. Um, And they were going to then file with the FDA to try and make inositols into a drug. But then they discovered that you can't really patent a natural compound. Hmm. In other words, this is something that's found naturally in nature. So you cannot get uh, a patent on the compound itself. It's natural, not synthetic. Correct. And so they basically gave up on it. The Europeans then took the ball and started running with it. And so between about 2005 and now, I would say probably 90, 95% of the clinical trials that have been done using inositols, and there's now several dozen in the world literature, have all come out of Europe. So, you know, our company, the company that I'm the chief science officer for, we launched the first 40 to one product here in the United States five years ago. And when we first started talking about this product with fertility practices around the country, we discovered what we call NIH syndrome, which stands for not invented here. <laughs> Most docs, for, you know, there's a lot of journals in the world, right? There's a lot of published publications in the world. And if it's not in fertility and sterility, not in FNS, if it's not in human reproduction, it typically is not going to be on the radar for a lot of docs here in the States. But uh, the PCOS community, has really, you know, there's so much advocacy with PCOS patients. They really drove that process. So we've talked about how the inositols affects like blood sugar and things like this. And our patients are all about wanting to have healthy pregnancies and things like that. But what they're immediately wanting to know is how does this help them ovulate? (laughs) And how does it help them either ovulate naturally or does it make their body more receptive to the medicines we are giving them to ovulate? So the interesting thing about inositols, I mentioned that they function as the second messengers for several hormones. The one we talked about so far is an insulin, right? But the other two are FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. Ooh, that's important. Yes. And thyroid stimulating hormone. You mentioned a patient earlier that has Hashimoto's. There's actually some trials using inositols uh, in patients with thyroid disease. Hmm, interesting. So how do the inositols work? The clinical trials that have been done and published using inositols, they typically can be broken down into two different groups. There are 
trials that look at primarily metabolic endpoints, where they measure things like area under the curve of insulin, fasting blood sugar, HbA1c. They look at testosterone levels. In other words, they're measuring primarily blood tests and metabolism. The other types of studies that have been done are those that have reproductive endpoints. Now, the problem with doing studies with reproductive endpoints is they've got to be much bigger, right? Those are huge studies. So for instance, um, PPCOS2, the study that was done looking at clomiphene versus letrozole, and for women with PCOS, and it was published in the New England Journal, that was 800 couples in that study. I mean, you really need a very big study population uh, if the endpoint is going to be live birth, okay? So the interesting thing about this whole process for us has been that five years ago, when we first launched this product, we got a lot of very blank stares. And in fact, a reproductive endocrinologist that I was friendly with said, oh, you know who would be interested in this? A guy that I did my fellowship with, Rick LeGrow up at uh, Penn State Hershey. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so he kind of put me in touch with Rick LeGrow. And I had a, an hour-long conversation with Rick LeGrow, who proceeded to tell me, I've never heard of this. <laughs> uh, it's like, why haven't I heard of this? And we kind of, I said, okay, listen, you know, thanks for hearing me out. And that was the end of it until about six months later, he called back and he said, okay, after our conversation, I dug up all of those journal articles. I think this needs to be studied here, you know, kind of NIH syndrome, not admitted here. It's got to be done in an American study for him to believe it. So we worked with him and um, he got a grant from the NIH. And so he's doing a clinical trial now. Oh, as we speak, he's doing a clinical trial now? Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Using our product, but it actually gets back to the question, Susan, that you raised before, and that is how much do you take? Okay. Almost all of the clinical trials done in Europe have used four grams per day. It's a, a white powder with this 40 to 1 blend, and you basically mix it with eight ounces of water with breakfast, and you do the same thing at dinner. It mixes with water. It's completely tasteless. A slight sweetness. The water has a slight sweetness to it. You can mix it with anything you like. And you just basically do that twice a day. So it's two grams in the morning and two grams in the evening. That's what's been used in most of the clinical trials. What the NIH wants done is they want a dose-finding study. Um, and so this initial clinical trial is looking at metabolic endpoints, not reproductive endpoints. It's a small initial study. But we're looking at placebo. Two grams, four grams, and six grams daily. It's really fascinating. It's an exciting story. It really is. So it sounds like the patients who are going to potentially benefit by this are patients who have diabetes, are patients who have PCOS and are anovulatory or not ovulating from that, are patients who are at risk for gestational diabetes. So their A1C, it's not diabetic, but it's a bit higher than we like or their BMI weight is higher, or any other diabetes precursors you can think of? Like, who, is there anyone else that we, we really should think about it? One of the things that we found fascinating, when we first started looking at creating a product that we did, which is called Ovacetol, there was one myo-inositol product that was being sold in the United States. And it was actually produced by an Italian company because the Italians have done a lot of the clinical trials. Somebody here in the States licensed the product from them, and it was being sold with the name Pregnitude. Ah. So it was called Pregnitude, and it was myo and folic acid together. But then 
as we started talking to people from the PCOS community, what we heard from them was, you know, so many young women, high school, college age women, they're not yet interested. They're not interested yet in like getting pregnant. They just want to know, you know, why am I having problems with my skin? Why do I have so much hair on my arms? Why is my hair thinning on the top of my head? So they're more interested in some of the sort of symptoms and signs of PCOS rather than the reproductive issues. And, you know, and by the way, you know, I only got my period three times this past year. So what we were told was no 17 year old wants to have a package on the counter in her bathroom called Pregnitude. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when we created our product, um, you know, we knew we needed to have something a little bit less uh, specific. Sorry, I want to kind of come back to the question that I had asked about how does the ovocetol help with ovulation or ovulation inducers? Right. So first thing it does is it reduces testosterone production in the ovary because insulin levels come down. And so basically the hormone ratios in the ovary are kind of more normalized. It increases FSH signaling. So not only do you get restoration of ovulation, you get improvement in egg quality, um, which has been shown in, in many, many studies. And you get serum testosterone comes down. Typically, a woman who's going to start on inositol supplementation, it typically takes around three months to see restoration of more regular ovulation. But in terms of androgenic side effects, things like hair and skin issues, that's more like a full six months to start really seeing significant benefit. There's amazing studies that are out there and they're, they're really well done studies. I mean, they're placebo controlled. You know, they have sort of very specific endpoints that they've been looking at. If one of our listeners is interested in that specific product, Provocetol, that you mentioned, how would they, can the patients just go online and order it from your website? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's actually Ovocetol, O-V-A, like OVA, right? Gotcha. Get it on Amazon. Okay. No, oh, okay. It's NSF content certified. Uh, they can also go to our website. There's a lot of information about it there. One of the things that's real important is that because the studies basically show that you really need a minimum of three months to decide whether or not this is helping you in a meaningful way, our product is basically comes in a three-month supply. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah, well, because it, you know you can buy a 15-day supply, it'll look like it's way cheaper, but you're not going to really get, be able to tell anything in 15 days. And it comes, our product comes in two different, it comes in either packets, almost like little, you know, like little lemonade packets where you just yeah. open it and you pour it in, or it comes in a canister with a scoop. Obviously, the less packaging, the less expensive it's going to be. But it's inexpensive to begin with, well less than a dollar a day. And although, interesting story, supply chain stuff is just crazy. Oh, yeah. That's hitting everybody everywhere. Yeah, yeah. The raw material price for myo-inositol tripled in the last 12 months. Wow. So, yeah. So, it's gotten crazy. What is it harvested from naturally? So, myo-inositol is made from what's called phytin, P-H-Y-T-I-N, which is in certain types of plants. It comes in potatoes. And the process is essentially they take that phytin, that raw material from the plant, and they have to do like a chemical extraction. Hmm. And in terms of safety, four grams per day, which is what the dosing is at this point for our product, two grams and two grams, absolutely, completely safe. Uh, there are studies that have looked at 18 grams per day without any side effects at all. Wow. It's generally pretty well tolerated. It's an exciting product. And, yeah, uh, it is exciting. And I will say that the PCOS community uh, you know, there's something called PCOS Challenge, which has meetings around the country. 
and I, I've spoken there a couple of times. Uh, the PCOS community has really driven the focus, and they, to some degree, they've dragged the professional community along. <laughs> Good for them. No, really. Um, you know, there's actually also a great study that shows several studies that show that if you're doing uh, IVF in a, a patient with PCOS, that if they're maintained on inositol supplementation, the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is dramatically reduced. The dose of gonadotropins that they need is significantly reduced. Hmm. There's an understandable tendency amongst reproductive endocrinologists to have complete faith in the brilliance of in vitro and the ability to kind of make things happen. But I'm happy to make things happen easier too. Yeah, easier and better is always well, good. Yeah, no, but <laughs> what the literature says is that this can be a really useful adjunct, even yeah. in the setting of, uh, of IVF. That's right. Well, that's fabulous. Thank you so much, Mark. We are so appreciative. I mean, every time we talk to you, I feel like I'm just sitting here uh, absorbing like, okay, this is who I need to start this on. This is how I need to approach it. And it's wonderful when we can double the podcast for our own uh, continuing medical education as well. And I'll even admit I took notes, Mark. So thanks. <laughs> I did too. I got the notepad next to me. I'm like, huh. I can't believe that Ovacetol has only been out for five years. Like I've been using it for a while and I honestly have been using it for so long that I can't remember when I started using it. So that's cool. It makes me feel good. I'm like, yay. I'll tell you my hesitancy to use it was just, I didn't really know what was the patient population and if they're on metformin, should I use it? And so I'm glad you were able to clarify some of that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a really good tool. By the way, I think I skipped over this. We look at inositols in our body, in our bloodstream, in the serum, the natural ratio that you'll find is about 40 to 1, mildly to Cairo. But then different tissues change that ratio as necessary. So peripheral tissues like fat, liver, muscle, they need more dechiro. So they'll convert myo to dechiro. The ovary, on the other hand, needs way more myo. Hmm. And so the conversion is lower. And that's why when the original study was published in the New England Journal back in 1999, and then they only used dechiro, the effect on the ovary wasn't really what they were hoping because the ovary doesn't need more dechiro. The ovary needs more myo. The peripheral tissues need more dechiro. And so that's why we do the 40 to 1 ratio. Very Interesting. Cool. And they can order it on Amazon. Absolutely. <laughs> or our website. Therologics.com. Uh, but everybody trusts Amazon. It's like, you know, people want it in that house tomorrow. Uh, and it usually is here tomorrow. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. This was great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And to our audience, thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by and leave us a, a like, hello, a follow. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.sensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.